welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Good morning, Carmel Press. How are you? Merry Christmas. It's good to be together in worship. Um, as Tim said, I hope you had a safe and dry Christmas. I loved getting to sit in my house and I had the windows open. And I just watched so many people braving the rain, going for walks. If that was you, kudos to you. I sat in my dry, comfortable house in my pajamas almost all day. It was successful for me. (laughs) But um, we're going to start by opening our Bibles. Grab a Bible, open up to Isaiah 43. It's on page 603 in the Pew Bible in front of you, or you can use an app on your phone. We'll, we'll read it together a little while later. But I want to start by, by talking about our spiritual lives and our spiritual lives that can be categorized into these three major movements. The first is uh, orientation, and then a disorientation, and then a reorientation. Orientation is when our life feels secure. Everything is going great. Uh, everything seems to be going our way. And then often, inevitably, we enter disorientation. We have a painful experience, and God feels distant. And then out of that disorientation, we inevitably move into a reorientation, where we begin to find ourselves again. We've journeyed through some, some kind of darkness, but we've come out changed. And this isn't a one-time cycle. We often like to think, I went through that one hard thing, I'm done. But we all know that that's the ongoing rhythm of life, right? We have security, then we'll experience despair, and then we'll inevitably come to a renewed sense of life, a new purpose. As a church during Advent, we've been journeying through the book of Isaiah. And so after we had this warm and fuzzy Christmas, I want to remind us where Isaiah is writing, who he's writing to, the history of this people. The people have been through these major movements. They've gone from orientation all the way to reorientation. And I think they think they've seen it all, right? They've been in exile. The backdrop of this text is they are exiled people living in Babylon. You'll recall that once upon a time, they were living in Egypt as slaves And that's the life they knew. That was their orientation. They knew how to live that life. But then God called them out of that and brought them into the wilderness, the season of disorientation, wandering for 40 years, until God finally brought them to the promised land. And that should have been their retirement season. They got to kick back and relax and coast. But that's not what happened. The Babylonians then conquered God's people, and they destroyed the city, and they scattered these people throughout the empire. So another season of disorientation. For 70 years, they were scattered, but they readjusted and they found a new orientation. And so Isaiah is telling them, that displacement that you went through, guess what? It's coming again. Another disorientation, but this time a different enemy, the Persians, with the Emperor Cyrus the Great. He's going to conquer you guys, but he's going to end up helping you bring you home, back to the promised land. But it's going to require another exile. And so Isaiah 40 to 55 is this prophecy of another exile that's coming and what's in store for the people. And so the message we see in Isaiah 43 is that there's constant movement, this constant movement and dislocation of God's people. And in the midst of that, God says, I'm doing something new. You're going to go back to Jerusalem. You're going to travel hundreds of miles. You're going to leave the security that you've developed, all that you know. You're going to be poor. But at the same time, God says, I will be with you. And I'm going to use the least suspecting person, Cyrus the Great, this pagan worshiping empire, and he's going to be my servant, and he's going to help bring you home. And so Isaiah 43 is the message to these people to prepare them. Restoration is coming. Protection is coming, even despite the challenges and the trials of your life. Because it's in the confusing and difficult times that God grows his people, that he matures us. And so the pressing question of Isaiah is one of trust. 
Am I gonna trust in what, what like, I want, the way I think my life should go, in human strategies, in comfort, in my own plans? Or am I gonna trust in these divine prophetic promises of God's grace? God has made these promises in the past. Right? Genesis 12, we see this promise to Abraham that God's gonna use Abraham and his family to bless nations. And then we see another promise to David's line of how this world will be saved through a king that's gonna come whose reign will never end. And so in their setbacks, they wonder, will God restore us as exiles? Will he fulfill his mission through a servant who will be raised up and return us from exile? Can that be true? And we know that that is true, that that is Christ, that he did come. And so if you're in Christ through faith, you too will inherit these promises. One author said, Christmas is God's great confirmation of all his promises. If Christ has come, God is true. And if God is true, all his promises will come true for all who trust him. The promises of God, they're not feelings. They're a firm foundation. But I think we confuse that. We confuse God's promises for our feelings. And so we get caught up believing that his promises are going to be like our feelings, which are fleeting and are momentary. And so in Isaiah's time, these descendants of Abraham and, and David, they've lost sight of God's promises. And so they begin to align themselves with the promises of the world, the fears of the world, of this false world. And they are directed away from God's blessing towards the ways of the world. And inevitably, their disobedience, it brings judgment and it brings consequences. They're deserving of exile. In Isaiah 42, he, he recounts that the people have sinned. He names it. You've sinned. And there's consequences. And so despite knowing what they deserve, Isaiah 43, it shines like this, this light in the darkness that even though you deserve punishment, even though you have sinned, you're not going to be defined by that. You're not going to be defined by the things you've done wrong. God instead, what we see in Isaiah 43, is God defines us, God defines these people by his grace. And so despite deserving that punishment, they receive instead a redemptive grace of God. But first, I think Isaiah wants us to intentionally see that we have to identify sin. We have to identify how we've strayed, how we've disobeyed God, so that when he speaks about his mercy and his grace, we can be, it can be accurately understood. Once sin is understood, then grace is able to be received. In other words, grace is understood when sin is understood. And that's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he talks about this idea of cheap grace. And he's saying cheap grace is when we preach a forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's grace without discipleship, without the cross. We need the cross. We have to see our sin on the cross in order to understand the grace of God. So the question is, do we trust God's promises? Or more so, do you, do I? Do I trust in the promises of God? Not just when life is great and things are happy, but in the in-between, confusing, disorienting times that we experience loss and grief, and I feel like my life is interrupted. Do I trust God then? I know that there are stories in this room and in our church of life interrupted, where life is good and then a cancer diagnosis or a life-threatening illness, or you have a job and then COVID hits and you don't have a job anymore and you can't pay your bills, or you've experienced infertility, or you've watched your child or your grandchild walk down a dark and destructive path. I've experienced disorienting seasons. I had family members every two months die, close family members, Every two months, another person, another phone call. And I don't know why, right? But it took my season of comfort and turned it upside down. 
And we can find comfort that there's people in this room that have also gone through that. And there's the people in the Bible that have gone through that. King David had a great music career for Saul. And then all of a sudden, Saul was trying to kill him. Right? Peter was a devoted follower of Jesus. And then we see from one moment he's following Jesus to the next moment he's being called Satan. We see Jonah, he's a messenger of God, going out, proclaiming, and then he's in the belly of a fish. So if you consider yourself in a disorienting time, you're not alone. And if you wouldn't consider yourself in that kind of season right now, don't worry, it's coming. You will, you will experience it one way or another. But that's the human experience. Like We can be together in that and knowing that we're not alone. And so this section of Isaiah that was just read, uh, it's about people in exile, and they need to understand their exile. They need to understand that this massive interruption in their life is not time wasted. There's buried treasure in the interrupted seasons of our lives. And so rather than see these messes as obstacles standing in our way to Jesus, standing in the path, getting like we want to get them out of our way, I think we have to walk through them and we have to see them as central to the work of discipleship. Some of our messes have been things that we've caused on our own. Other of them have just been things that have happened to us. And either way, it's not wasted time. It's not lost. St. John of the Cross, he talks about these times and he calls them the dark night of the soul. These are deep, dark, lonely places. But what's overlooked is that in that deep darkness, the darkness of the soul, that time is not in vain. He talks about how there's spiritual crisis that actually inform us, inform a deeper union with God. It's in those times of deep darkness that we begin to deconstruct who we think it, God is based on our feelings. And we get to pull apart who God really is in order to really see him for who he is and then begin to understand who we are in light of who God is. So if you're interested in beginning that deep work of deconstruction and reconstruction, I'm going to recommend one book um, by Pete Scazzaro. It's called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And this is work of understanding that we cannot be spiritually mature if we're emotionally immature. So behind this question of trusting God's promises lies this underlying emotion of fear, usually a fear of God abandoning us. These people right, were in exile, and they were afraid that God had forgotten them or that he would forget the promises for the future. They were waiting for God to bring them home, restore them, and we too are waiting. Advent is this season of waiting, waiting for the Messiah, this promised king. And sometimes when we're in the midst of waiting, this disorientation, pain, anticipation of what's to come, we can be forced into fear. Yesterday I was, I was reading this devotional, the last day of the Advent devotional, and the author is saying that the greeting, Merry Christmas, he would like to substitute with be not afraid. And here's why. He said, when we're proclaiming a joyful Christmas season, we inevitably look at the story of Christ. And if we look at the story of Christ, you see that the Gospels begin with the message, do not be afraid. There's the first message after 400 years, right? The Old Testament ends, 400 years of silence. And the Gospel opens, the first message that's spoken is to Zechariah about his son. And the message is, do not be afraid. Then that message is repeated to Mary, then again to Joseph, and then to the shepherds. Do not be afraid, a savior is coming. So maybe where we experience Emmanuel, where we might experience God with us, is actually in the midst of our fears. The fears about our lives, our future, the world. That promise, do not fear, that was given to Zachariah and Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, it wasn't a momentary promise. Think about Mary being pregnant. That promise started then, but it 
stayed with her throughout her pregnancy. It stayed with her through childbirth. And as she watched the Son of God grow up and die on the cross, I believe that message kept ringing in her ears, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. So what do you fear? Do you fear growing old? Do you fear safety, security, your finances? When I was growing up and into my early adulthood, I feared death. That was my biggest fear. I just looked around and I loved my family and my life and I was like, I can't imagine them not being here. I don't know what death is like. It seems pretty permanent uh, and scary and I just was terrified. Anytime someone brought it up, I would just burst into tears. I think underneath my fear of death was also an embarrassment. I really believed that God is who he says he is and I believe that he conquered death. Does my fear of death mean I don't trust him? That I can't rely on him? And so there's this tension between fear and embarrassment. And so if, if fear is this emotion of not trusting God, then shame comes second. Shame is its cousin. The first negative emotion we see in the Bible is fear. When Adam and Eve are in the garden and they've sinned and God calls out for them, this is what Adam says. I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And since that point, fear has clung to our human nature and it keeps popping its head up every time we feel shame, every time we forget the promises of God. Isaiah knows that the people have reason to fear. They're in exile, they've sinned, the new judgment was coming. And so God gives through Isaiah this word of hope about his grace. And there's so many promises in Isaiah 43 and really in all of Isaiah, but this morning I'm just gonna focus on three. The Lord says, do not fear. And here's the three reasons why. He says, do not fear for I have redeemed you. Do not fear for I am with you. And do not fear because I am doing a new thing. These promises give us a reason why we should not fear or at least have a certain type of fear as our primary response. But then the question is, is fear ever an appropriate response? Is it bad to fear when I receive terrible health news or when I'm not sure how I'm gonna pay my bills? The angel told Mary, right, do not be afraid. But then if you keep reading in Luke, Mary has this beautiful song, and in it she says, his mercy is for those who fear him. So which is it? Do not fear, but then fear the Lord? I think there's a reason for our fear. There's a reason that we have this emotion. That when God says, do not fear, I don't think he's saying, turn off that part of your brain, shut it down. I think he's trying to get us to recognize something. That when we fear, where do we go? Where does our heart and our mind actually go when we fear? Where do they take us? How do we deal with our fears? Remember, for Adam and Eve, it took them to a place of shame. They hid from God. And if we're honest, we know that our fear can take us to these dark and paralyzing places. But instead, I think God wants us to draw near to him in our fears. Fearing the Lord in his presence, it means that we draw close to him rather than pull away from him. It allows us to take that next step of fear, even in the midst of our, of, of our doubts. And like the dark night of the soul, our fears can bring us union with God. Because when we fear him, we lean into his embrace. So instead of being afraid, the sin isn't being afraid, it's what we do with our fears. How do we handle them? Does it push us farther from God and push us into disobedience? Or do we allow our fears to actually draw us near to him, to rely on him? Look with me, Isaiah 43, verse one. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. Isaiah's just finished telling them in chapter 42 about this judgment that's coming and then he says, but now grace is coming, so listen up. You want to know how you can trust God? 
God says, I made you. I formed you. And keep reading in verse one. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. Let that just sink in for a minute. God says, I made you. I knit you together. I know everything about you. Every circumstance that has come into your life, I've perfectly measured, and I'm sovereign over it all. So do not fear, he says, because I have redeemed you. That's the first point. I have redeemed you. I've liberated you. I've ransomed you. To understand this meaning, God includes these allusions to the Exodus. So read, let's start in verse 3. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. There's this language, right, ransom and Egypt and uh, giving in exchange for life, and it demonstrates the length God is willing to go for his people. They'd already been through one exodus, and God is now naming these far-off places, right, Cush and Seba. He's saying, I will go to any length to bring salvation to my people, even an exodus, even paying a ransom. Whatever it takes to redeem you and bring you home, God's saying, I'll do it. I would go to the ends of the earth for you. And not only that, I will pay the ultimate price for you. I have paid the ultimate price for you through the son, the life and death of his son, Jesus. Redemption is the idea of being set free from bondage. It involves paying a price, usually at a very high cost. Alpha is this course that we've done at Carmel Press, and it's international, and it basically brings people to faith, um, explains the gospel to them. And Nikki Gumbel, the founder of Alpha, always explains redemption this way. So he says, imagine there are two great friends, two friends that grew up together, went to elementary school and high school, and then time for college, and they end up going to the same college. And they continue being great friends, roommates, and all the things, all the memories. And then after college, they want different things, so their lives go in different directions, right? They stop talking as much, and anyways, one ends up going to law school and becoming a lawyer. And then after he's a lawyer, he wants to be a judge, so he goes on to be a judge. The other one doesn't go that route, has a very different trajectory, and ends up going into a life of crime. And so one day, this criminal ends up being arrested in handcuffs, and he's brought into the courtroom. And he stands before the judge, and he looks up, and that judge is his friend, right? That friend that he grew up with that knows him so well. And so the judge looks at him, and he's faced with this dilemma because he loves his friend, his childhood friend, his lifelong friend, but he knows he has to do justice. And that's similar to God's dilemma. He loves us, but it's in his nature, it's in his character that justice must be served. And so he can't say, just like the judge can't say, oh, you're an old friend of mine, I really love you, so I'm just going to let you off the hook. No. So the judge has to do his job, right? He, he gives a guilty verdict, and he finds this criminal, let's say, like, $500,000. And this criminal has nothing. All he's done is steal and cheat and lie his whole life. So he has no money, nothing he can leverage, so he has to go to prison. Before they take him away, the judge takes off his robe, goes down, steps off the bench, and then takes out his checkbook and writes a check for $500,000. He pays the penalty himself. I know it's not a perfect illustration, but this is what God has done for us in Christ. The idea is that a penalty must be paid. Sin is this impossible debt. It can never be repaid by us alone. And our redemption, it comes through one person. It comes through Jesus. So because God has created you, he's formed you, he's embraced you as a part of his family, he calls you by name, he says, I'm going to buy you back. I'm going to pay the ultimate price for you. And so for those who call Jesus Lord and Savior, 
Our fears have been conquered through his redemption and liberating us from a life apart from him to a life with him. So that first point, God says, do not fear because I have redeemed you. I have ransomed you. Second point, do not fear because I am with you. We hear this twice in Isaiah 43, this promise. Let's look at verse two. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame should not consume you. Even when we come to a saving faith in Christ, we know that our journey is not free of difficulty. There are potholes, there are detours, there are (laughs) things that happen in life, right? And so God is saying it's not about if they happen, it's about when they happen, when you go through those hardships, because you will, I'm with you. We talked about this earlier, even in those times that are deep and dark, the dark night of the soul, confusion and pain, God is saying, I am present with you. He doesn't promise away the floods and the fires. He promises that he's with you as you go through them, that he's going to hold back the flames. He's going to hold back the waters. Think about how the people would have received this, right? They would have heard this message from Isaiah and remembered, that's right. When we were walking in the desert, when, when God led us, he held back the water. He parted the seas for us. All we had to do was follow. And so if you're in a season of flooding or a season of a fire, know that God might allow the water to splash you. Like you might get wet. You might get tired from the fire and the flames, but God is not going to let it consume you. God is not going to let it destroy you. Anything you pass through in this life, every unimaginable struggle, God's promise is that he is with you. And we know that because he sent Jesus, Emmanuel, that says God is with us. So my challenge, one of my challenges this morning is that the fears that you have right now that are running through your head, what if those became a point of divine connection? That you allowed your fears to be a divine appointment with you and God, and you allowed those to actually open up a door for you to talk with him, to pray to him, to sit with him. Because God says, not only do I say that I created you and that I shaped you and that I've called you by name, that I love you, not only do I say that I've redeemed you and you're precious in my sight, but God says, I have showed it. I'm showing it by coming in the flesh, by taking on humanity, by being born in this vulnerable way, by living a life on earth. I've shown you through the redemption and the death, the life of Jesus. God is a God of promises and thankfully not a God of empty promises. These promises were lived and breathed and embodied by Jesus. So put your trust in him. Put your trust in that promise. Give Jesus all of who you are because he has given us all of who he is. The third and final point, do not fear because God says, I am doing a new thing. And like we said earlier, these seasons, these major movements in our spiritual life of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation, we come out on the other side changed. And so the people of God have been through all these seasons, and and we have too. But if we're not careful, what happens is that once we hit reorientation, we revert back to our oriented life and, and think, I've been through that difficulty, so now things will be smooth, right? No, that's not the case. We will continue, like I said, this cycle, we will continue to go through these seasons of disorientation and reorientation. And Isaiah 43 wants people to know that they're going to live a reoriented life. Look at verse 18 to 19. It says, Remember not the former things, 
nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do not perceive it. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. As, as exiles, these people are being told, don't live in the past. You've been through an exodus. You know what God can do. But just wait for what he's about to do. So forget the ways of old. Stop spinning your mind on all these bad things that could happen. Don't let that fear take you to a place of sin and it gets out of control. I have a friend that calls this analysis paralysis, right? We analyze something so much, our fears just take over and we can't move. Like we're, we're paralyzed by fear. This promise in Isaiah is saying that God is going to make a way where there is no way. When there's not a clear path forward, God is making one in the wilderness. When there's no relief, he's saying, I'm going to bring rivers to desert, to a place that there would be no water. As humans, we tend to carry all of these memories and experiences that we've had. And sometimes we allow that to keep us from moving forward to encounter God. Our vision just becomes clouded with pain and bitterness and things we've walked through. And God's saying, if you want to see the new things that are coming, you have to let go. You have to let go of that past. You have to let go of the old way of doing things. There's no other way. And so once you lay aside those old ways, you'll start to see God saying, I am already doing a new thing. Look around. If we looked around our world, we would see that God is already beginning new things. He is bringing bread to the hungry. He's returning power to the powerless. He is breaking chains of injustice. And so some of you this morning are thinking about the fact that you're not in a dark season, and that's great. And others of you have been thinking about that darkness that clouds your life, that problem that has you spinning in fear. And others of you are just reflecting on something you came out of, something you journeyed and you're on the other side of and you're praying that nothing else comes up in the new year. For all of us, though, 2022 will have joy. It will have things to celebrate. But it's also going to have difficulty. It's also going to have worries and doubts and fears. And so let me close with this. When you feel that God is far off, when you feel like he's abandoned you, I want, I want you to think about these questions. Did God form you? Does God call you by name? Does God love you? Are you precious in his sight? Has God redeemed you? If you haven't heard anything else this morning, hear this, yes and amen to all of those questions. Yes, God has formed you in your mother's womb. God has called you, and I believe right now in this moment, he's calling you again by name. I believe that he loves you infinitely more than the person on earth that loves you the most, that he sees you as a precious child, that he has redeemed you from sin. So rest assured that God is with you. He promises he is always with you to the very end of the age. As you journey from now until heaven, God is with you, always. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, we thank you for these promises, that they're a firm foundation. God, we sit before you and we open our hands and we lay at your feet the fears that cause us anxiety, the fears that cause us to spin out of control and worry. God, you know the things that burden our heart, our, our darkest moments, the things that we are terrified of. And so right now, God, I just ask that you would lift those burdens. God, your spirit is here. 
And so I pray that we would acknowledge it, that we would sense your presence, wrapping us in your love, in your mercy, in your grace. God, we thank you that you have redeemed us, you have set us free. God, and you say that you love us as precious children. I pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.